0: We're going to be in uh, Matthew chapter 1 this morning, but before we get there, I want to ask you to pray with me. Would you take a minute and bow your heads? Father, we come before you with our, our heads bowed and our hearts in the right place. I thank you for the ability that we have to sing. I thank you for vocal cords, that you saw fit to create us with a voice that we could use it to lift up praise to you. I thank you, Father, that we can participate in something that The angels get to do constantly in heaven, and one day we'll get to join them. Thank you, Father, for the truth and the words that we just heard, that we can declare that you came among us. Father, as we look at your word this morning to understand more of your nature and your character, we ask that you would be present in our hearts and that your spirit would invade this room. We ask specifically, Father, for the ability to see things that we might not have seen before things that you'll give us a capacity to understand how that would translate into our life, how we not only might know you better and understand you better, but, Father, how we might reflect you better. We ask that you would guide us as we open up your word this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We understand, especially after our, our teaching last week, looking at how God invaded the life of Mary, how he was working through her, that God's purposes and his plans are eternal. Nothing catches God by surprise. He lays His foundations from before the foundation of the world. He laid His plans in order to carry out what He intended to carry out and what He still carries out today. We know that our God's purposes are eternal. That's what Scripture tells us. You can look with me on the screen at Ephesians 3.11. The Word says this, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God, before the foundations of the world, we examined this last week, laid a plan in place. He's never surprised. I, however, am surprised all the time. My plans don't always work out the way that I want them to. I'll tell you about one of those. A few years ago, I was fishing with some friends of mine, and we were in Alaska, and uh, we were on this ocean-going vessel, and it's a very, very large, heavy ocean-going vessel, And as we were out there in the ocean, we were catching salmon. We were in Prince William Sound, northern Pacific Ocean. And as I'm looking at shore, I kind of got bored because I'd caught so many salmon already. I thought, well, it would be really fun to get up on shore as opposed to being out on the ocean and I think that there might be some fish in a lake up on the shoreline. So I'm scanning the shoreline, and I see a break in the pine trees. So there's this huge line of conifer trees, and then a break, and then a pickup of the line of conifer trees again. And I convinced the guys that were on the boat with me that I think that there's a lake up there, and I would like to get up there because I bet there's trout in that lake that no one has ever seen before. And I'll be the first. So how about if you figure out a way to get me up on shore, even though we're out on the ocean? So the guys agreed, and the boat captain was a little bit reluctant, but then he kind of took it as a dare, because I said to him, I bet you can't get me up there. And he said, I bet I can. And so we concocted this plan, mind you, not a good plan. Um, the devise was this. We we're in the midst of the ocean. The swells are about seven or eight feet. I devised that I would stand on the bow of the boat. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll hold the motors in neutral position. And even though we're riding the swells of the waves, as the upswell comes, you're standing up on the, on the nose of the boat. At that point, we should be very near dry ground. You can jump off the nose of the boat onto the shore. I thought that's a great plan. It didn't turn out to be that way okay so he gets the boat this is a pretty large about 30,000 pound vessel and so we're getting up there and it's rocking back and forth and I'm standing on the bow of the boat watching us go in and out and each time the wave rises up like this I'm realizing wow the nose of the boat raises up also it's like 18 feet down there to that ground so next brilliant move I decided I would hang off the bow of the boat yeah I know So I'm hanging off the bow of the boat, waiting for dry ground to appear below me, and he's holding the engines in neutral, and that's when I realized the anchor of the boat was also on the bow of the boat. And every time the boat went like this, the anchor swung out. At that moment is when the anchor hit me right in the face, and boom. (laughs) Last thing I remember was looking up. I I passed out for what couldn't have only been a few seconds, but as I looked up, I see the swell of the bow of the boat coming up over my head and realizing, huh, this is not a good place to be. So I quickly rolled out of there, only to get up to see my friends who were much wiser than me jumping off the side of the boat into about three or four feet of water at that moment and wading up on shore. This is where the story gets really bad. Yeah, I know, as though it's now already. <laughs> okay, so... Sure enough, there was a lake up on the shore. We got up over the rise of the shore, looked out into the area where the conifers were not. Beautiful lake there, but none of us remembered to bring any fishing gear. Okay, So we turn around to look for the vessel, only to see that this big vessel that we were just on has now been lifted up by a wave and set right down on the shore. The boat has been beached. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's no cell phone signals Not knowing what to do next, we concocted plans about how the five of us were going to move this 30,000-pound vessel back out into the water. Now, I'm not going to tell you the end of the story right now, okay? Suffice it to say that last time I told this, I had somebody come up to me and said, what happened? Did you live? (laughs) No, I'm on the shore up in Alaska right now. Didn't happen that way. See, our plans don't always go the way we want them to, do they? They don't always work out. But our God's plans always work out. So as you approach the biblical events, in the first century especially, you must ask yourself this question. When I see God's activities, the way the Bible spells them out, do I believe, do I believe not only in a God who is capable of intervening, in the world's affairs and inserting himself into these events, but also do I believe in a God who planned out all of his activities far before the foundations of the world? Because there's no surprises with God. He orchestrated everything. If you do believe that, then you believe in the God of the Bible. You believe in the God of the Bible who loves you so much that he actually planned before the foundations of the world to orchestrate events in such a way that he would bring us to himself and cause us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of this verse up on the screen, Romans 8, 29. It says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Many people, when they read that verse, really get caught up on the word predestined. We're not going into predestination. That's not the purpose of this. Actually, the focus of that verse is not predestination. It's the outcome. Look at the outcome. That's the important part, to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's part of God's eternal purpose, that we would reflect what Christ looks like. We're going to examine an example of this kind of activity today as we get into the text. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. The circumstances are extraordinary. And I, help you, I want to help you unpack it and understand what's going on here, because this is truly supernatural. Some individuals, even in the church today, will take a look at this story of Mary becoming pregnant as a teenager by the Holy Spirit and dismiss it completely and say, scientifically, it's not possible. They would say that science triumphs faith. And many individuals that we live among today would say, it's not possible. How could that possibly be? But my Bible says nothing is impossible with God. You remember seeing that last week? Luke one thirty seven. for nothing will be impossible with God. That's what you want. I want you to see that on the screen, just so you remember that. For nothing will be impossible with God. You need to bank that away in your memory banks. However, now, as we discovered last week, when nothing is impossible with God, that means God's activities in our lives leads to action an expectation that we're going to take action so god's activities leads to action which may not always be actions of our own choosing as mary discovered remember the angel showed up she's talking to mary and said behold mary you found favor with god so she's on god's favorite list yet she found herself with a premature premarital pregnancy She's a teenage girl hoping to get married, yet she's pregnant, out of wedlock. So this is a situation in which we say God's finding favor with us does not always equate to getting the assignment that you want. That was not an assignment she necessarily wanted at first because she didn't understand God's eternal plan. But as it was explained to her, and as we're going to see with Joseph this morning, God is always working out His plans. He's always accomplishing His purposes. Look with me on the screen. Here's a final reminder of last week. Isaiah 46.10, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like Me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all My good pleasure." Now, as we're stepping into Matthew chapter 1 this morning, I hope you have your Bibles with you so that you can follow along. I want you to understand a little bit of the Hebrew background for a first century wedding. In a first century wedding, we know that Mary and Joseph are engaged, and they're stepping into a time of planning. Now, at some point, Joseph's dad, or Joseph himself, went to Mary's dad and began a negotiation process by saying, my son would like to have your daughter's hand in marriage. Sometimes the fathers negotiated it, sometimes the groom negotiated it themselves. Eventually, the bride, the daughter, was brought into the process to be explained the negotiations of the terms. When that was concluded, and they had arrived upon what was called a bride price, they would then sign a document called a ketubah, and the ketubah was something that was on display for all of society to see. They would go to the synagogue, meet with the priest of that synagogue, and the, the priest would get out this large document, and he would write in the bridal registry the name of the groom and the bride for the entire community to know in a public pronouncement that these two belonged to each other. So once the ketubah was signed, they, the priest would then bring out one solitary glass, and he would pour wine into it. And the bride and the groom would each take a drink of it, symbolizing that they had consummated their agreement legally. At that point, they belonged to each other. Nothing could break that, except for the fact that they stepped into, at that point, a one year waiting period. And the purpose of the one year wait from the time the document was signed until the actual wedding ceremony was to prove loyalty and faithfulness to each other, that they would remain pure. So at that point, the groom would leave the bride with her parents, and he would go to his father's home, and he would begin preparing a place for them to dwell. Thus you see the imagery when Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, And when it is time, I will come back and receive you unto myself. Jesus using wedding imagery for us. So that's what you need to understand about a first century wedding as you step into this. It gives you a lot of understanding why Mary and Joseph are in this situation. Now, as we step into Matthew chapter 1, we see that there's this genealogy that begins. You'd like to open it up and have it start reading to you about how Jesus came about. But before you can get there, there's 16 verses that say, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and And it's father, son, father, son, father, son, until you get to verse 16 and something unusual happens. Look with me up on the screen or in your own Bibles, Matthew 1.16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So we see all these generations explain man after man after man after man. And then Matthew inserts the name of a woman. First time. First time in the entire genealogy. And a woman's name is mentioned. And there's a specific reason for that. Matthew wants us to understand that God brought about something remarkable that had never happened before. So you need to put that in your memory banks as well as you move forward. Verse 18 says this, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. We'll stop right there. Last week we learned that this word betrothed is a word that we use for engaged. So here's the definition for it, ministio. And it means literally they've exchanged souvenirs. For us, we use a ring. I don't know if they used a ring at that period of time simply because they didn't have a lot of money. So they exchanged some type of an engagement present with each other. She's, if we will use this, wearing his ring at this point. So she belongs to him. Now Mary and Joseph, who are engaged, are looking forward to their wedding date. Men... What do grooms think of when they're looking forward to their wedding date? Are they thinking of the color of the bridesmaid dresses? No, probably not. Are they thinking of the flowers? Probably not. They're thinking of their wedding night. So most grooms are looking forward to a future date when they're going to consummate the marriage. What was on Joseph's mind? He's no different. He's thinking forward. He's not thinking about the color of the bridesmaid dresses. He's thinking about he's preparing this place to dwell with his bride, and he's got a consummation night coming. The ketubah has been signed. The legal document is in place. All of the community will be invited to this event. And so we find them in the midst of the one-year waiting period, waiting for the consummation of their marriage. So Mary and Joseph in the one-year wait, and she's found pregnant. She's discovered to be with child. So let's go to verse 18 because this one's really packed. Verse 18 says this, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So you can break this down into three sections. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Talk about unpacking a full verse. Meaning, They've experienced no sexual contact whatsoever. Mary and Joseph have not known each other, yet she's found to be with child. Joseph became aware of her pregnancy. It apparently became obvious. We know that she went away for three months to hang out with her cousin Elizabeth. When she comes back, apparently she's showing. Somehow Joseph finds out, and this is very, very serious, because it's a breach of the marriage contract. She's found pregnant, and he assumes she has been unfaithful to the ketubah, to the signing of the marriage document. Now, in in Scripture, we discover that sexual purity is of very high value to God. Outside of marriage, God says abstinence. Within marriage, God says faithfulness, and he hasn't changed whatsoever. In the first century, it's still consistent, and Joseph understands that. Now, I'm going to rabbit trail with you for just a minute so we understand what's going on here theologically. We would call this Theology 101 because the Bible is very consistent about how Jesus was born. It tells the same story all the way through. Jesus did not have an earthly biological father. He had an earthly biological mother. Let me emphasize this for you. Galatians 4 4. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Do you see a man mentioned there at all? See, Paul wrote that to the Galatian church. He wanted them to understand. When God sent forth his son, there wasn't a man involved, there's a woman. The fullness of time. God sent forth his son born of a woman. So there's no human father in that verse that's very consistent with the Bible. Constantly saying Jesus had to have one human parent or he could not have been human, right? But he also had to have divine parentage or he could not be fully God. He could have never been for you a sinless, perfect sacrifice if he had not been born of God yet he could have never known human emotion and temptation if he had not been born of woman. So by the Holy Spirit it tells us obviously that Jesus arrives as a result of the Holy Spirit is a huge mystery to us. God may as well try and explain to us how he spoke the universe into existence or how he created the human eye. We have no idea, yet we accept it and we understand it. So understand this, and I put this in your notes this morning. We, we really need to key in on this because many in the church miss this detail. I want you to see it on the screen as well. As fully God, Jesus could pay the penalty for your sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's what Scripture says. And the second part is, because he's human, he can understand your weaknesses, and he understands temptation. So we have this combination. I know this is Theology 101. However, you know something now that Joseph had no idea about. Joseph didn't know anything about what I've just showed you. This is a complete mystery to him. So it would be expected that he will divorce Mary. He has no reason to continue on with the marriage. She's breached the marriage contract. So here we go to verse 19. And Joseph, her husband being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Now at this point you want to yell, Joseph, Joseph, wait, read Luke chapter 1. That'll explain it all. But Luke chapter 1 didn't exist, did it? Luke chapter 1 hadn't been written yet. He didn't have the benefit of the book of Matthew. Matthew. He didn't know any of this. It's just being lived out in his life. So we're told Joseph is her husband at this point. What do we know about Joseph? Well, here's a few things that we know. He's introspective. He's a person who really ponders and processes. He's not a pushover. He obviously doesn't get shoved aside. Apparently, from what I've studied from Scripture, he's fairly adventurous. He's willing to take that long journey all the way down into Egypt and to protect this child. He's running away from the government, the authorities of his time, in order to protect Jesus. And apparently, he's willing to be used, too, because he completely surrenders. Now, I told you last week, and I'll reiterate it again, it appears Joseph was probably 17, maybe 18 years of age. At the oldest, 20. Mary was most likely 14 years of age. 14, maybe 15, when the marriage would be completed. That was very common in the first century. Why? Because people had a lifespan of about 35 to 40 years of age at this period of time. They married quite young in their teenage years. They also had a great deal more of responsibility at this time. We also understand that he's apprenticed in a carpentry shop, that Joseph is making his living in a respected trade of the day. How do we know that? Well, that comes right from the Bible, Matthew thirteen fifty four. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? The tecton. Is this not the tecton's son? Now see the definition for the word tecton on the screen. You'll understand that it's speaking specifically of a craftsman. That's the word that's used there. Now the architecton was the boss. It's the word where we get the root word architect. Architecton was the supervisor of the wood shop. The tecton was the guy with his hands on it. He was the woodworker. He was the bricklayer. He was pounding the nails. We also understand that he's a righteous man, according to Scripture. He's an Old Testament saint. He's someone who lived and died before the cross and before the resurrection of Jesus. So we would call him an Old Testament saint. But I believe this about Joseph also. His heart must have been crushed as a young man looking forward to his wedding night. And the years ahead of him, making his place with his bride, he genuinely loved Mary. You can see his love in his actions, and I'll show you that in just a minute, because he chose not to publicly humiliate her. So we're told he's a righteous man. What does that mean? Some translations say he was a just man. It means that he followed the Mosaic law. He honored God's law of the day. He's careful to observe the law. And a violation of God's law has taken place. And so he can't just wink at it. He can't just let it go by. He has to do something. She is no longer a virgin in his mind. That's what he perceives. And so he's got to take some action. And he's unable to consummate the marriage. But he doesn't want to be cruel. So what's he going to do? She's no longer eligible to be married to him. He's her betrothed but she broke the ketubah. What does he do with this? So Joseph comes up with a new plan. We're told he planned to send her away. So Joseph concocted in his mind, very quickly, apparently, a new plan. But in order to leave his justice and his compassion intact, his plan was that he'll send her away secretly. Do you ever stop to think about the range of emotions that this young man must have been experiencing? He's got all the joy of a young groom. He's making his living in a respected trade of the day. He's finished carpentry school. He's on his way to building a home for her. And she's pregnant? She's the love of my life? And then he has to come up with a plan over which he's deeply conflicted, yet he's humiliated because all the community knows they've signed the ketubah. And now he's got shame to deal with. Now mind you, In the midst of all of this, God is at work in the background, even though he doesn't know it. He doesn't understand all these things are part of God's plan. Even in the midst of all this turmoil, God is carrying out an activity. He is about to experience God in a way he could have never imagined. What's about to take place is something they never taught him in woodshop. Let's go forward and look at what happened next. We're going to go to verse 20. I'm going to give you an observation before we read this. I understand something about men who work with their hands. I've spent some time in a wood shop. I understand after doing a few hours in there what guys who work with their hands do. They have a lot of time to ponder, a lot of time to think, a lot of time to process information. Joseph would be no different. He's had a lot of time to ponder the situation. Individuals who tend to work with their hands, tend to be extraordinarily determined. We might say stubborn, okay? So determined, stubborn individuals, once they've processed information and arrived at a conclusion, can be about the most stubborn people on planet Earth. Now, knowing all the circumstances that are going on, the breach of the wedding contract, the understanding that she's pregnant, Given the complexities of this issue, it's going to take something extraordinary to reverse Joseph's thinking about the plans that he's come up with, and God has something extraordinary in mind for him. Go forward with me now to verse 20. But when he had considered this, meaning the divorce, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So you get this, God sent an angel from heaven to unfold the mystery of the greatest plan in creation in the entire history of the world to a teenage guy working in a wood shop. Do you need to have a degree in theology for God to reveal to you his plan? No, you don't. God uses what we would say are ordinary people all the time. Do you have to have a seminary degree for God to work through you? Absolutely not. This kid has no seminary degree. He doesn't have theological training. God is speaking to him about his greatest plan in the history of the world. And Joseph is considering this divorce, and it's at that moment when he came to a conclusion that God decided to intervene. So he's made up his mind, and in a moment, God summons one of his warrior angels to the throne and says, I want you to deliver this message to this man, Joseph. This angel steps through the fabric of time and delivers this information to Joseph about what God is up to and what he's doing. We're told an angel of the Lord appeared to him. I don't want to get too far into angelology this morning, but here's what I can tell you just briefly so you can anticipate this. Because the word that's used here appeared is the word fino. And the word fino, I'm going to put it on the screen. It's not in your notes. Fino means to appear with a brilliant luminary glow. And so we're told this word fino, when he had considered this an angel of the Lord, fino to him. So Joseph apparently is seeing this brilliant image. We understand in Scripture there are three classes of angels, cherubim, seraphim, and what we would say are ordinary messenger angels. I don't think there's any ordinary angel, but we've got the three classes of angels. Isaiah, you can read about it later today, Isaiah 6 gives a beautiful description of what an angel looks like. Daniel chapter 10 gives an amazing description of an angel. We understand that these different classes of angels have different responsibilities before God to deliver information. Gabriel, sent from God, was given the responsibility to deliver information directly to Daniel, directly to Mary. The seraphim... Are the mighty angels who surround God's throne, whom Isaiah said, I saw them with six wings, and with two they covered their feet, with two they covered their eyes, and with two they flew, and they glowed red as they swept across heaven. So, this amazing imagery obviously is what Joseph is seeing. We don't know which angel because we're not told. The focus is not on the appearance of the angel. What's the focus on? It's focused on the message. It's concentrated on what he needs to say. So fresh from God's throne, this mighty angel appears to Joseph. And what does he say to him? Joseph, son of a woodworker. Is that what he says? No. Joseph, son of David, the mightiest king who's ever ruled over Israel. Now that would get your attention right away if you're associated with royal lineage, Joseph is in the line of King David. And the greatest king to ever rule over Israel is whom the angel associates him with, Joseph, son of David. So he's on high alert now because this is obviously imperial purposes. There's kingdom issues going on here. And the expression is one of dignity and honor. He's a woodworker, church. And God is speaking to him through an angel. And this, Joseph, is what God has to say to you. Number one, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Now, I want you to understand this word take because it's part of a sentence in the Greek language. Parlamambano. And this word parlamambano means literally to have intimate contact, to bring her into your life. And we're not talking sexual We're talking about caring for, wrapping your arms around, loving, providing a safe environment. So this angel is giving directions right from God. Do not be afraid to take this young teenage girl who's carrying a baby into your home. And yes, it's going to be hard. But the word here literally has the sense in the Greek language. And the reason I told you it's part of a sentence is it means this. Do not shrink away from that which is hard. Take her into your life. I know this about man because I am one. Men are very good at doing. And Joseph has just been given a doing assignment. He's been told, you're going to be the caregiver for this young woman. You're going to protect her and the son that she brings forth. So Joseph is giving a doing assignment because he's a fixer. He knows how to fix things. Number two, the second thing we're told, for the child who has been conceived and get ready for the big surprise is of the Holy Spirit. So he drops the bomb right on Joseph. She's pregnant. And she's not only pregnant, she's pregnant by God. It's God's activity. God made her pregnant. So in a moment, what has happened here? All of Joseph's plans, everything that he strategized for his life has been turned on a dime because God's activities were going on in the background. So here's what you were hearing. Joseph, not only are you not going to walk away from this, you're going to play an intimate role in my plans for accomplishing my purposes. And I want you to notice this, church. God is not forcing him. If you don't mind writing that down in your Bible, it's a great reminder for you. God does not force you to do things. God draws you to himself. God opens up opportunities for you to join him in his work. And that's what you see going on here with Joseph. He's not being forced. He's being invited into an opportunity to serve a role in God's plan. And it's an eternal plan. Go with me to verse 21 because we understand now that there's no need for an ultrasound with this baby. Verse 21 says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people From their sins. So God is revealing the plan of the ages and I cannot get this out of my mind. God is revealing the plan of the ages. The greatest plan in history so great, we're told according to the Bible, that even the angels long to look into this, to understand this. He's revealing this to a young man who lays bricks for a living. He pounds nails. And here at this point is where Joseph Is drawn into the greatest mystery of God's eternal purposes. You shall call him Yahshua. You shall call him Jesus. Now, normally in patriarchal times, fathers were given the responsibility to name the sons and the daughters. Mothers played a role in it, but the fathers announced it publicly. In this particular case, the name is not left to the parents because this is a name of destiny. You need to understand the root of this name so you understand next time you read this verse how significant this is. There were many children who were named Joshua or Yahashua, and it meant God is able to save. So every child that had that name, Joshua, were carrying around a title with them. Joshua, meaning Jehovah is able to deliver. Except we're told here when the angel says this, you will name him Jesus for he will save his people. See the angels recognizing right away who this child is. It's not a reflection of God's ability, it's a reflection of who the child is. He will be called Yahshua for he will save his people from their sins. And this church orients us to the fundamental purpose of why Jesus came. I don't know if you've ever saw this before in scripture, but it's right there. The purpose for Jesus coming, he will save people from their sins. So that takes us all the way back to where we started this morning. Ephesians three. God's eternal purpose. Look with me on the screen. Ephesians three eleven. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we understand is Jesus came for a purpose. What's the purpose? To deal with sin. That's why he came, to deal with sin. So God's purposes are at work here, even when your plans are interrupted. Even when Joseph's plans for his entire life are laid out, God's interrupting them and saying, his purposes are at work. I'm going to leave you with this last verse here, verse 22, so that we understand why this was written. Verse 22 says this, Now all this took place, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. You know, I wrestled with that all week long. I'm looking at that and thinking, is that the angel? Is that the angel speaking, and this is Matthew writing it down, a continuation, or did Matthew write this down? Where's the source coming from? Who's saying this? And then I realized it doesn't matter. What is important here is what we're supposed to understand. This took place, church. He's telling you, this is all written down for people who are going to read it in the future and look back at it. This is written down for you. This all took place. Why? To fulfill God's eternal word. We're told that not only are God's purposes and plans rooted in history past before the foundations of the world but that his word also is eternal. Look with me on the screen again, Isaiah 48. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So just so we're on the same page about this eternity thing, about the word forever, it's the word olam. Look at the definition. The vanishing point. Generally time out of mind, past or future, meaning it's so vast, we can't comprehend it. Olam, God's word is Olam, with no beginning and no end, just like his purposes and plans. And the fact is, as a result of God's purposes and plans, we've got a pregnant virgin. How stunning is that? That's what scripture is saying. A virgin shall be with child. It's stunning, a pregnant virgin. And equally spectacular is that his name is going to be called Emmanuel. Now, I don't think anybody went around the streets of Nazareth saying, there goes Emmanuel. I don't think that was his nickname. It obviously is a title associated with his character. It's found its fulfillment in Jesus. So in Jesus, none the less than God was right where we are. So here's the last verse because we get Joseph's response now. Verse 24, And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Yahshua. You ever stop to think about the feelings of shock for Joseph? Amazement and relief at the same time? He gets to bring his bride home. He gets to care for God's son. And I think Joseph was a great dad. No way God's gonna trust his son to somebody who's not gonna show up at the end of the day after work's done. I think Joseph was there for him. I think he brought him into the workshop. He was a great dad. It's inconceivable that God would trust his son to anyone that wouldn't be. So we get to see this played out because Joseph did something that we need to do when we know God's at work and we can see his activity, we have to respond. Because as soon as Joseph understood what God said to him, he woke up and he took Mary for his wife. He violated every single custom of the day. They had signed the ketubah. They were supposed to be in the one-year waiting period. You're not supposed to marry a pregnant girl. He's violating all the customs. And because God said, do it, he responded, even though, yes, there would be gossip in the community. There would be a slandering of his name. There would be people who would not understand. But Joseph knows the true story. Joseph knows God's will for his life. are going to be many times when God's active in your life, and other individuals watching around will say, what are you doing? That, that makes no sense typically you don't want to say to them, well, God told me to do it because we feel like people would laugh at us about that. So we carry on our actions feeling like God really wants me to do this and we take flack for doing things that we believe God has called us to do. Joseph is a great example of that. He breached all societal norms to do what God told him to do and he called his name Yahashua. If later today you go to Luke chapter two, you see that, Matthew, or that Joseph legally adopted Jesus He's the one that called his name on the eighth day when he was circumcised, Yahashua, doing everything that God told him to do. So here's the pattern that we've seen over these last two weeks. We see Mary, visited from the angel, she's told what's going to happen, her response is immediate. We see Joseph, he understands what God is doing in his life, his response is immediate. And Joseph's obedience and his submission is no less remarkable than Mary's. So this week, as I'm wrapping this up, I'm working through this, I came across a question from a theologian from 1820. His name is Charles Simeon, and he structured his question in such a way that it's haunted me all week long. And I wanted to share the question with you. I put it in your notes this morning, and I want you to see it on the screen. What effect has the arrival of this day on you? What effect has the arrival of of this day on you? See why that's haunted me? His ability to structure that question in such a way, it's really penetrating. Now, Charles Simeon is a very respected theologian, and I'm sure he thought about this for himself as well, because I didn't write that down just for you in your notes. I wrote that down for myself as much. Because at the end of the day, will you be able to look back on the day and say, I responded to God's activity in my life? At the end of the day, will you be able to identify God's activity in your life? That's what he's calling us to do because he has a plan and a purpose. It's eternal. He's always working out his plans. Jesus said, my father is always at work and I am at work too. So our responsibility is to identify where he's at work and join him in his work. So here's where we'll end today. I'm going to take you back to the verse we started with, Ephesians 3.11. You'll see it up on the screen. Before you reach for your car keys, hear me out on this. Ephesians 3.11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So his purposes are eternal. They're always existing. Olam, vanishing point. What is his eternal purpose? Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That word conformed is a little tricky in the Greek language because it's a compound word. It means this, a union with an adjustment. So you unite with Christ, it's a union with, as you adjust your life to his purposes that's what conforming is united with Christ adjusting your plans to his greater eternal plans so we allow god to continue to work through us by adjusting our plans to his eternal purposes here's the greatest compliment i think anybody could give us in the greater metro area when they think of new hope church I would love to hear as I travel around the Lansing area when people talk about New Hope Church for them to say this. Wow, those people really look like Jesus. Would that not be a great compliment? That people would identify us as those who are conformed to Jesus. That we're obviously saved if we've confessed the name of Christ, but that we keep working towards the full measure of the maturity found in Christ Jesus. That's my prayer for our church. Not only that we're bold, but that we look like Jesus. I'm going to pray with you right now that God would seal these things in our hearts. Would you bow with me about that? Father, we once again bow our heads and our hearts before you and ask that you would take the reality of the things that we've heard this morning and that you would help us not to forget them as we walk out to our cars, as we drive to wherever we're going today and the things that we get involved in, Father. Help us to remember that we reflect the image of the King of the universe. Father, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that would cause us to be conformed in such a way that people would look at us and identify us as followers of Jesus. But that's what we would ask. As we take on the week ahead of us and these days leading up to Christmas, as people around us watch us, knowing that we belong to you, we ask that you would help us to look like you. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.